Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with revelations in The New Yorker that Elon Musk has enormous leverage over the U.S. government, NASA, the Department of Defense, and the country of Ukraine, whose fate in this war for its survival in many ways is in the hands of a drug-addled right-wing troll who his former business partner says has bought what Putin is selling, hook, line and sinker. Joining us to discuss how the Pentagon defers to this mercurial billionaire is John Pike, one of the world's leading experts on defence, space and intelligence policy. He is the director of globalsecurity.org, which is focused on innovative approaches to the emerging security challenges of the new millennium. Pike previously worked for nearly two decades with the Federation of American Scientists, where he directed the space policy, cyber strategy, military analysis, nuclear resource and intelligence resource projects. Then we'll speak with William Arkin, a senior editor at Newsweek and one of America's premier military experts, who has been a consultant to wide-ranging organizations, including the United States Air Force, the United Nations Secretary General, Human Rights Watch, and the Natural Resources Defense Council. The best-selling author of more than a dozen books, including The Generals Have No Clothes, The Untold Story of Our Endless Wars. His latest book is On That Day, The Definitive Timeline of 9-11. We'll discuss his latest article at Newsweek, how Ukraine is crushing Russia's famed God of War artillery, and how much the U.S. is both helping and hindering Ukraine's war effort. Then finally, we'll examine the double standard in American justice as Trump and his cohorts get celebrity treatment at Atlanta's Fulton County Jail, while inmates inside who can't afford bail rot for up to a year without trial. Joining us is Eko Yanka, Professor of Law at the University of Michigan, whose work focuses on questions of political and criminal theory, and particularly questions of political obligation and justifications for punishment. His research focuses on criminal law and theory, political theory, policing, and voting rights. He also serves on the executive board of the Innocence Project and the American Constitution Society's New York chapter, and his publications include A Paradox in Overcriminalization and Good Guys and Bad Guys, Punishing Character, Equality, and the Irrelevance of Moral Character to Criminal Punishment. And before we begin, I'd like to thank our sustaining listeners whose tax-deductible monthly donations, large and small, at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, or at our foundation, publictruthmedia.org, enable us to provide a daily briefing on the major stories in the news, free from commercials, corporate underwriting, paywalls, and constant fundraising. As Trump and his MAGA followers weaponize lies in their war against truth itself, we're in a fight between crazy America and normal America. In order to overcome deliberate distraction and distortion, background briefing seeks out facts and information to awaken the silent majority in the hope of restoring a reality-based community before fascism trumps democracy and facts become completely irrelevant. And joining us now are John Pike, who's one of the world's leading experts on defense, space, and intelligence policy. He's the director of globalsecurity.org, which is focused on innovative approaches to the emerging security challenge of the new millennium. Pike previously worked for nearly two decades with the Federation of American Scientists, where he directed the space policy, cyber strategy, military analysis, nuclear resource and intelligence resource projects. And he's also been at the forefront of utilizing satellite imagery to monitor worldwide weapons facilities. Welcome to Background Briefing, John Pike. Good to be here. 
Well, thanks for joining us, John. And there's been quite a lot of attention because of this, uh, the revelations in the New Yorker that Elon Musk has enormous leverage over the United States government, over NASA, the Department of Defense, and most importantly, over the country of Ukraine, whose fate in this war for its survival in many ways is in the hands of what the New Yorker article portrays as a drug-addled right-wing troll. (laughs) (laughs) A characterization that Elon has done very little to discourage. (laughs) Right. Who his former business partner, Reid Hoffman from PayPal, says has bought what Putin is selling, hook, line, and sinker. So therein is a massive security problem, isn't there? (laughs) Well, um, if he wasn't the richest man in human history, I don't think he'd be able to get a security clearance. And I don't know how they compartment his activity for the U.S. government, but his notorious uh, public drug use, I think, would prima facie disqualify him from doing classified work. So there's been some history, I guess, of this in the sense that an eccentric billionaire like Howard Hughes was a major defense contractor. And That's right. He, he drove the Pentagon crazy, but this is a whole new level, isn't it? Well, Elon is rich in a way that no other human being has been previously. I mean, I was looking into this, and, you know, back in the 1960s, if you had a billion dollars, you were among the very richest people that had ever been. And now Elon's worth, you know, $100 billion. And there are a few other, a handful of other people who have that kind of money, but there's just never been that much concentrated wealth in the hands of a single individual. But what is frightening about the the revelations in The New Yorker is that not only does he, in many ways, have the fate of Ukraine in his hands, because if they lose the Starlink satellites, they're in big trouble. And he pulled the plug on them once when they made advances into previously held Russian territory. They suddenly lost all communications, which... And then the the U.S. Defense Department had to go back in and suggest to him that that was not such a good idea. And they're currently using them, but uh, they are really dependent on uh, what side of the bed Elon gets up on in the morning. But that's no way to run a railroad, let alone a war. (laughs) Oh, you noticed? (laughs) No, I mean, I think that this is sort of systematically the uh, problem with Elon across many of his endeavors, that um, he has an enormous fan base of, uh, you know, his fanboys really like his unorthodox approach to things, uh, but there's a reason that people do things the normal way, because that's the way you can predictably get things done, and he's not doing it that way. But not only does Russia seem to have leverage over him, because in the midst of him shutting off the Starlink to the Ukrainian military, he was apparently on the phone with Putin. And as I mentioned, one of his former business partners, uh, Reid Hoffman, uh, said that uh, he swallowed you know, Putin's line, hook, line, and sinker. So we Well, don't he's know. not the only one. He's not the only one. I mean, if you look around, there are a lot of people 
at the right end of the political spectrum who think that uh, Putin stands for traditional family values, and uh, they see him as being the solution, not the problem. But I was going to say that China also must have leverage over Musk because half of his cars, uh, the Teslas, are built in China. Well, the Chinese have very sophisticated electric battery capabilities. They have a very large uh, domestic automobile market. And uh, like Willie Sutton, uh, Elon has gone where the money is, and a lot of that money is in China. And apparently they're not happy about him supplying Starlink to Ukraine. Well, I think that the uh, Chinese have been doing what they can to uh, support Russia's war in Ukraine without overtly shipping the weapons, but certainly in terms of space support, providing the Russians with uh, satellite communications, with navigation, satellite services, certainly, certainly with uh, imagery intelligence, because the Chinese imagery intelligence constellation of satellites today vastly exceeds anything the United States had during the Cold War. And almost all of this sort of uh, support is the sort of thing that's just not going to show up, that uh, you're not going to be able to get smoking gun evidence about. And so I think the Chinese are putting their thumb on the scale wherever they can and helping Elon uh, understand the wisdom of uh, supporting uh, Russia's aggression in Ukraine surely must be part of that. So what do you think makes him tick vis-a-vis his apparently of support or affection for Putin and powerful drugs. <laughs> <laughs> it's got to be more than that. I mean, I imagine. Well, uh, he, 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 I'm not so familiar with his early childhood and uh, how he responded to apartheid Africa, but certainly he left uh, uh, South of the Republic of South Africa right around the time that the apartheid regime was being dismantled. And uh, here in the United States, he has, from the very beginning, pursued a uh, uh, hard right agenda in terms of the way his companies are managed. I mean, for instance, uh, recently uh, there was a report that uh, they are not hiring uh, immigrants, even people with green cards, even people who are perfectly legal uh, to work for U.S. corporations that have government contracts. Elon's not hiring, I guess, because he doesn't like immigrants. And certainly if you look at some of his other labor practices at his companies, uh, he is uh, not a friend of the working man or woman, for that matter. Well, as you point out, he does have a lot of political influence via Twitter now, X, and he clearly does not like Biden and the Democrats and initially supported Ron DeSantis, who seems to be tanking. So I imagine he'll... Uh, Find su- somebody else to bankroll. Well, I was going to say that it looks like this Vivek uh, Ramaswamy, he's being supported by Peter Thiel, who's a close friend and business partner of, of Musk's. And also... And he's Leonard got Leo, all kinds it. of wild ideas. So, R- right. Uh, well, 
this is what I find extraordinary, is that these guys like Peter Thiel and Elon Musk, they say that they're libertarians and they want you know to get government off your back like Ronald Reagan, but most of their wealth comes from government contracts. Without a government investment, Tesla would never have gotten off the ground. And well, that's SpaceX where, that's, is... That's where the money is. That's right. where the money is. Right. You know? And uh, uh, Teal's got Palantir, which is a, the CIA funds, you know. So I guess pointing out hypocrisy is kind of futile in this day and age, right? Oh, that, it's a very quaint posture. <laughs> I mean, hypocrisy comes with the territory. But, no, I mean, it... Uh, as they say, it's uh, socialism for the rich and capitalism for the poor. So what can the Pentagon do then to maintain its control over our national security and not have this mercurial well, it, billionaire uh, pull the strings? Well, I think that part of the problem is that Elon does have a lot of fanboys throughout uh, the government bureaucracy. He uh, clearly had a fan base over at NASA when they awarded him a critical contract for the program to return to the moon. And he undoubtedly has a lot of people who are part of his cheering section over at the Pentagon. It's a problem, but it's not simply a problem for uh, NASA or for the Defense Department or for the intelligence community. I think it's a problem for America as a whole that we have structured our economy and structured our society so that uh, a small number of people have a historically unprecedented amount of money under their personal control. And uh, certainly Elon is a walking advertisement for why that's a bad idea. Uh, I mean, I have, you know, Nothing against people who like to take a teeny toke or two, but uh, Elon has been so ostentatious about his irresponsible drug use that uh, how we can put the future of the space program, the war in Ukraine, and all these other things in his hands escapes my understanding. But it's not simply these government agencies. It's the country as a whole. We, we had a similar problem on a much smaller scale back in the 1890s, the Gilded Age, as Mark Twain called it, I think, when you had all of these titans of industry uh, who have, you know, now they're charitable, charities like Rockefeller and Carnegie. But back then you had a small number of people who had a disproportionate influence over the society and economy. And it took several decades uh, in the progressive era, as they called it, that followed the Gilded Age uh, for those uh, radical disproportions in power to be ironed out. And I think that's going to be required here. Uh, and we're really only beginning, only beginning that process. And I think it's going to take several decades more to come. But in trying to understand why Elon Musk and Peter Thiel and J.D. Vance and Ramaswamy, <laughs> this, this guy that was a nobody until they had this Republican presidential debate the other night, and he sort of filibustered his way into, sure. into public consciousness, although uh -huh. his ideas are appalling and he's kind of a frightening character. But he's a part of this Silicon Valley 
libertarian clique, they believe that capitalism is incompatible with democracy. And right. they admire people like Putin, I guess because Putin not only runs a mafia state, but he also has has a rule of oligarchy, right? So these guys right. are oligarchs. Is it is it that that's simple right. that they want to create an well, American oligarchy? Well, that's a good oligarchy? place to begin. That's a good place to begin. I mean, Ayn Rand, you know, Fountainhead, Atlas Shrugged, all that anarcho-libertarian stuff. I mean, that's all very inspirational when you're in high school or college. But most people uh, grow out of that, and there are a few people who haven't. And they happen to be very powerful. They happen to be insanely rich and so insanely powerful. So is there a solution, at least at the Pentagon level, you'd think that national security would be insulated against a wild card like uh, Elon Musk? Well, you would think that over at NASA it would be insulated against Elon's wild schemes, but he has had so many preposterous technical solutions that anybody who's been paying attention to rockets for any period of time would understand were bad ideas and weren't going to work. You saw, you know, his first big rocket launch, that failed. And now they say that our return to the moon is going to be delayed uh, because of that, because of other uh, problems in uh, his space project. But if you look at what he proposed, landing this, you know, this gigantic zeppelin of a rocket directly on the surface of the moon, it was absurd. It was always absurd. It was never going to work. But who buys this stuff? I mean, I Man guess he's... Boys. But he's got, boys, a, he's got a good record with Tesla, I guess. People like them. They sell like hotcakes. Um, well, I think that in the case of Tesla, uh, he uh, was wise enough to let the engineers do what seemed the right thing to do. I mean, you know, if you, I wish you good luck trying to find the door handles on the thing. But, uh, uh, you know, apart from those little Easter eggs, it's a decent enough light electric vehicle. And he happened to have uh, Pioneer's preference first mover. And uh, he was in the right place at the right time and didn't uh, meddle with the engineering solutions in the way that he has been meddling in uh, uh, the part of his empire, uh, SpaceX, that is not publicly held. I mean, in the case of uh, Tesla, he's got other shareholders, other stockholders, and he's got a board of directors that he's accountable to. In the case of SpaceX, uh, he owns it personally, uh, and so he thinks that it's his toy, his plaything. And in the case of Tesla, his uh, charging network is pretty much going to be dominant, right? Well, that would certainly be the idea, you know, give them the car for free and then sell them the electricity. Work right. for razor blades. <laughs> <laughs> I see. Well, just in closing then, do you see these characters having an influence in the 2024 elections? Because they've got so much money and they obviously support right-wing causes. And I'm sure if you support Putin, Putin's best play is to have Trump come back to end the war in Ukraine on his Or somebody terms. like him, sure. Yeah. Uh, or uh, Ramaswamy, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, I'm not so much worried about the 2024 election as I am the 2036 election because uh, none of these guys are spring chickens. And I think they're going to be with us for far too long, some time to come, many years, if not a couple of decades. Mm. Well, on that depressing note, I thank you for joining us. Anytime. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with John Pike, who's one of the world's leading experts on defense, space, and intelligence policy. He's director of globalsecurity.org, which is focused on innovative approaches to the emerging security challenges of the new millennium. He previously served for nearly two decades with the Federation of American Scientists, where he directed the Space Policy, Cyber Strategy, Military Analysis, Nuclear Resource, and Intelligence Research Projects. And he's also been at the forefront of utilizing satellite imagery to monitor worldwide weapons facilities. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking into how much the U.S. is both helping and hindering Ukraine's war effort. I'm goddamn rich. I'm exploding man. When I talk in the night, there's all my hands while the dark. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is William Arkin, a senior editor at Newsweek and one of America's premier military experts, who has been a consultant to wide-ranging organizations, including the United States Air Force, the United Nations Secretary General, Human Rights Watch, and the Natural Resources Defense Council. The best-selling author of more than a dozen books, including The Generals Have No Clothes, The Untold Story of Our Endless Wars, his latest book is On That Day, The Definitive Timeline of 9-11. And his latest article at Newsweek is How Ukraine is Crushing Russia's Famed God of War Artillery. Welcome to Background Briefing, William Arkin. Thanks for having me on again, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, Bill. I just wanted to touch on the most recent news out of Russia, which was the very public assassination of Prigozhin. It seems extraordinary that Russia's deputy foreign minister was upset with some of the remarks from uh, the U.S. government suggesting that, in Biden's case, suggesting that nothing happens in Russia without Putin knowing about it. They took <laughs> umbrage at the notion that you could possibly accuse Putin of doing such a thing. And it reminds me, I think it was Le Carre who said, talking about intelligence officials in the West, saying that gentlemen want to become killers and killers want to become gentlemen. And it would seem to me that the one piece of leverage that the U.S. has over Putin is that he wants to be treated like a statesman, not like a gangster. And from day one, we've treated him like a statesman, not a gangster. Well, there's a lot to unpack there, Ian. Um, At this point, we don't really know whether Prigozhin was assassinated or not. But let's assume that he was. Um... It seems to me that uh, I'm sure that there are a lot of factions within the uh, Russian military, particularly that uh, wanted to see Prigozhin disappear from the scene. He had created more of a headache for 
the Ministry of Defense and the general staff than he had for Putin himself. And while he might have shown up Putin to some degree, uh, the reality is that uh, the losses that Wagner experienced on the battlefield in Ukraine uh, were such that Wagner as a fighting force in Ukraine could probably no longer be sustained. So the timing of Prigozhin's so-called mutiny uh, was also interesting because it came at a time when about 30,000 uh, Wagner troops uh, out of some 55 to 60,000 had died in the assault on Bakhmut and uh, other areas in eastern Ukraine. So to me, I, I look at all of this and I say to myself, you know, what what is different uh, uh, with in a world without Prigozhin? And, and certainly one of the biggest differences is uh, that uh, somebody who at least was willing to speak out against uh, Putin, uh, I don't think he was a political rival in any way, but he was certainly a voice uh, that was heard, uh, is gone. And so that's a huge win uh, for Putin. Uh, on the other hand, Prigozhin was also very supportive of Putin in a funny way. And I think maybe we're a little bit too loose with uh, uh, crediting him with some kind of march on Moscow that was serious. Um, uh, because in reality, uh, he uh, supported Putin in Putin's own efforts to uh, shift blame for the Ukraine war uh, from his own shoulders to that of the military. And if Prigozhin was uh, saying that the Russian Ministry of Defense was miserable and the generals didn't know what they were doing and uh, the Minister of Defense was a treasonous, a corrupt official, well, that all helps Putin, because in the end, if Putin is able to convince the Russian people uh, that he was somehow lied to or misled by the Russian military, or alternately that he had provided uh, uh, orders to the Russian military that they just were not competent enough to carry out because of corruption and because of their own internal problems, uh, then it does sort of take some of the fingerprints off of the war, take some of Putin's fingerprints off of the war. And, and I think in terms of thinking of the political future in Russia and of, of Vladimir Putin, uh, Prigozhin, in a funny way, uh, did him a favor. So uh, I, there's no doubt that uh, probably a lot of people wanted Prigozhin killed, but I wouldn't necessarily put Putin at the top of that list. Uh, it, it, to me, it rings much more like an intelligence operation or a military operation uh, that really is payback for uh, Prigozhin uh, mounting his attacks on the Russian military, which he started to do in January of this year. And how do you think it's playing within the rank and file of the Russian military itself on the front, who are being under a lot of pressure from the Ukrainians and in your recent article at Newsweek, how Ukraine is crushing Russia's famed God of War artillery. That, of course, God of War artillery was Stalin's uh, description of the use of artillery and uh, the tables have turned. And uh, General Petraeus recently suggested that the Ukrainians might well make a breakthrough. And it, at a certain point, it's not inconceivable that the entire Russian fronts could collapse because morale is so low. So how much is the the divisions within the military, the squabbling with Prigozhin and the assassination of Prigozhin affected morale, do you think? Well, uh, I don't think that Russian military and morale are really ever put in the same sentence, except in some negative way. 
there is no morale in the Russian military, and not, not only because of the losses that they have faced, uh, but also because uh, the leadership in the Russian military uh, has failed the Russian soldiers. And there are lots of other things going on, like, for instance, the pe- soldiers are not being paid, uh, and they're certainly not being given the uh, the weapons and the, and the support that they need in order to uh, protect themselves. So uh, the morale of the Russian military is very low. Uh, it always has been from the beginning of this conflict. But most important, in most of the movement forward that uh, that Russia experienced from February of last year until about... Uh, July or so of this year was done on the basis of uh, advances that really took place in the first couple of months of the invasion. And uh, essentially, Russia kind of came to a halt and uh, undertook these massive artillery strikes against uh, Ukraine. Now, those artillery guns can only shoot, you know, 20 miles or so. So the war is taking place in a fairly a small area of, along that 1,500-mile front, uh, along this 20-mile or so band, if you will, uh, around the front line. Uh, the attacks that have gone beyond the 20-mile band or so are attacks that have been few and far between. Well, the Russians started to lose uh, their supply and inventory of artillery shells about uh, eight months ago or so, and and that decline has continued up to the point where Russia has gone from a max of maybe 50,000 artillery shells being fired a day along that entire front uh, to less than 6,000 today. So that's a that's a tenfold decrease. Uh, meanwhile, the Ukrainians have received uh, better and better rockets and better and better guns and, and ammunition from the West. Uh, and they have been able to now counter uh, the Russian artillery with their own strikes. And those strikes themselves are also more effective because the quality of of uh, Western arms are better and 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 Ukraine is receiving a lot of pre- precision guided weapons. So you have this tide turning, and people talk about the fact that Ukraine is not doing well in its counteroffensive. I mean, that's only something that we'll be able to judge when we actually understand what it is that Ukraine expected to do. Uh, but to me, uh, the Russians over this period of time have uh, sown, this gigantic minefield uh, a mile wide along the entire front. And the reason why the Ukrainians are not doing well in terms of moving forward is that they've got to make their way through this minefield with the minimum number of uh, casualties to themselves. So that makes Ukrainian artillery more uh, important during this time. And it makes the Uh, shortages and loss of Russian artillery that much more pronounced. There's just not a lot of movement going on right now. Most of what's happening is bombing from both sides, where the Ukrainians seem to have a a bit of an advantage. So when I look at the counteroffensive, I say to myself, well, you know, the counteroffensive has been pretty uh, successful over a period from last October until now. The Ukrainians have managed to retake about 50 percent of the territory that the Russians had uh, um, uh, invaded uh, up until about April of last year. And then on top of that, the, the Ukrainians are the ones that are making progress in terms of movement forward, not the Russians right now. They're in complete defensive stance. Now, these were many of the things that Prigozhin, uh railed against, uh, the, the lack of uh, offensive character of the Russian military, the lack of supplies, the diminishing artillery that was available to 
his own forces and to the Russian military. So when I look at Prigozhin, I say to myself, well, he really uh, did a job on the Russian military, which, as I said before, can only help Putin. And uh, and Wagner being dis- disbanded as a as a independent military force um, further clears the way uh, for the Putin to blame the Russian military for the loss in Ukraine, uh, because there isn't this irritant of a of a third party uh, operating in the war like Ukraine, Russia and Wagner, because now it's just Ukraine and Russia. And of course, Putin can point all of his fingers to the Russian military and even argue, which I think he will disingenuously, uh, that uh, any advances that Russia uh, was able to take uh, in the summer of uh, and spring of 2023 was a result of uh, what Wagner had achieved. And there is some truth to that. But it, interestingly enough, uh, all of what I see in the Purgosian tale is one where uh, Putin is the winner. But Bill, your argument here essentially means that Putin himself has realized he's going to lose and he's looking for scapegoats. And my sense is that Putin probably does know that the war is going badly for him, but his most effective play would be to help elect Donald Trump, who would then immediately cut aid to Ukraine and perhaps even pull out of NATO. Well, there's no question that the longer that Putin can uh, string out the war, the more he creates some normalization of the fact that Ukraine is split. That the, that the territory of Ukraine is indeed occupied by Russia and has been occupied by them for some time. Crimea and, and the Donetsk region since 2014, and now these greater advances, particularly in the West since February 2022. So Putin definitely has an interest in stringing the war out. Now, he also faces his own balancing acts, though. Uh, he has to balance that with the declining quality and vitality of the Russian economy, he has to balance that with the horrendous casualties that uh, that uh, Russia is experiencing inside Ukraine. He has to balance that with uh, a domestic disgruntlement about the, the, the prospects of the war and, and the purpose of the war. So if I'm Putin and I'm looking at the picture in Ukraine, um, it seems like waiting for NATO to lose consensus, waiting for NATO to exhaust itself in supporting Ukraine is certainly a a valid strategy to pursue. But my guess is at this point uh, that if the if the West or some other third party came up with a face-saving way in which Putin could extract himself from the Ukraine war, uh, he might take it. And unfortunately, we don't have that third party. I mean, Sweden has joined NATO. Uh, the UN seems to be powerless. Uh, the United States has put itself firmly in the in support of uh, of Ukraine and and countries that have been mentioned like Saudi Arabia are just not viable international players. So to me, when I when I look at like this state of stalemate that we're in right now, where the Ukrainians are taking uh, some uh, territory at great loss to themselves as well, uh, it seems that waiting for the 2024 elections uh, is not is probably a pretty good strategy on. Putin's part, but to say that somehow he's capable of or could do something that would help Ronald Reagan to be elected, I think, is a little bit naive at this point. Uh, Not Ronald Reagan, uh, yeah, <laughs> Donald oh, yeah. Trump. Donald but, Trump. <laughs> uh, yeah, 
Well, no, it doesn't have to help him. But I'm, I'm, you know, if he doesn't help him with active measures, he certainly would hope that he would win. And I'm wondering how motivated Biden is to win because I've never understood why it is on the U.S. side we dribbled in arms and said you can't have this, you can't have that, and then months later we finally relent and give them what they've been asking for for months, and that has given the Russians plenty of time in the, at the moment to build defenses. And it just seems that within NATO itself there are some splits. The Baltic states, the Scandinavian states, the former East Bloc with the exception of Hungary – are very, very determined uh, to stop Putin, whereas the Germans and the Americans, it seems, and perhaps the French, are not quite as determined. And so let me ask you the, the question that's bothering me. How much is the U.S. both helping and hindering Ukraine's war effort? Well, you do ask an interesting question, Ian, and I've written about this in Newsweek uh, many times. Uh, the Biden administration has a primary goal, and its primary goal, of course, is to avoid direct confrontation with Russia. And that has governed what types of arms it's willing to supply Ukraine. It's governed uh, what kind of assistance it's willing to provide Ukraine. And it's governed what kind of pressures it puts on Ukraine in terms of attacking Russian territory or escalating the war. So far, in the eyes of the Biden administration, that's been a successful strategy. Uh, they both avoided uh, a direct confrontation with Russia, while at the same time dissuading Putin from escalating the war, either to the use of nuclear weapons or expanding it beyond Ukrainian territory. So if I'm sitting in the White House today, I'm saying, well, this has been a pretty good strategy, and dribbling at arms to Ukraine uh, is a good uh, manifestation of that strategy, because essentially it has made it clear to Ukraine that we somehow control a spigot, which is going to decide what Ukraine is able to do and not able to do. Now, having said that, the truth of the matter is that the war has changed. I mean, what the Biden administration might have thought before the Russian invasion, what it might have thought in the, in the first hours of the Russian invasion, what it might have thought two months later as, uh, as Russia uh, withdrew from the Kiev region, and what it might have thought six months later, and then even now a year and a half later, are different because the conditions on the ground have changed. It's not one static thing. So the willingness of the Biden administration to provide artillery and projectiles and then to provide the long-range rockets called HIMARS and then to provide precision-guided weapons and now possibly to provide F-16 fighter aircraft is predicated upon changes on the ground in which the Biden administration has been more confident uh, that it can exact a greater price for the Russian military while not risking uh, this escalation. So uh, I don't see the Biden administration uh, withholding support from Ukraine, but I do see them adhering to their basic strategy that we're not going to support Ukraine at the cost of drawing the United States and Russia into a direct confrontation, a direct war against each other. Having said that, the Biden administration does not have an end goal uh, or, 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 or an end plan that I can uh, surmise. I've talked to a lot of Biden administration officials over the last year. I've, I've talked to a lot of people in the military, written and, and, and reported extensively on this. And I don't feel that there's anyone who particularly has an end, end game, that they, that they have a, a place or a goal that they want to achieve at some point. General Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, has consistently sort of said that the wars could go on for days, months, years. And, um, 
And, and while that's true, I, I don't think that the United States is a passive player here. The United States could influence how long that war goes on, but that just doesn't happen to be the, uh, the strategy and policy of, of the United States uh, uh, under the Biden administration. Would Donald Trump have a different strategy or policy? Uh, I don't know. And uh, let's remember that a lot of what Donald Trump tried to achieve in the national security realm uh, was basically uh, vetoed by his own Defense Department and his own intelligence community so that uh, Trump was not really able to achieve any of what he said publicly he wanted to do because they essentially stopped him from from doing those things. So, right. but, so just, but just in the last minute, though, we're running out of time, Bill. Yeah. I just wanted to ask you what General Milley just said, that Ukraine is breaking through complex defenses and making sustained progress, and it's going to be bloody, long, and slow, but this is not unusual in war. And then Petraeus is saying that that the Ukrainians could, in fact, break through and the Russian military could entirely collapse. So where do you come down in the last minute? Well, I would say this, Ian, I've been writing this in Newsweek since last May. That, that's May a year and a half ago that essentially Russia will eventually lose. Um, my hat is not off to either Millie nor Petraeus for being uh, sages, uh, they completely had the wrong opinion in the beginning of the war. But I've been consistently saying that the Russians are going to lose. And in fact, they will lose. But the question is, is do we want that to be a catastrophic loss or do we want to manage that in such a way that we avoid World War Three? And really, that's the only question we should concern ourselves with today. Well, William Argan, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thanks for having me on, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with William Markin, who's a senior editor at Newsweek and one of America's premier military experts, who has been a consultant to wide-ranging organizations, including the United States Air Force, the United Nations Secretary General, Human Rights Watch, and the Natural Resources Defense Council. And he's the best-selling author of more than a dozen books, including The Generals Have No Clothes, The Untold Story of Our Endless Wars. And his latest book is On That Day, The Definitive Timeline of 9-11. And his latest article at Newsweek is how Ukraine is crushing Russia's famed God of War artillery. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back examining the double standard in American justice as Trump and his cohorts get celebrity treatment at Atlanta's Fulton County Jail, while inmates inside who can't afford bail rot for up to a year without trial. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Echo Yanka, who is a professor of law at the University of Michigan, whose work focuses on questions of political and criminal theory, and particularly questions of political obligation and justifications of punishment, whose research focuses on criminal law and theory, political theory, policing, and voting rights. He also serves on the executive board of the Innocence Project and the American Constitution Society's New York chapter. And his publications include A Paradox in Overcriminalization and Good Guys and Bad Guys, Punishing Character, Equality and the Irrelevance of Moral Character to Criminal Punishment. Welcome to Background Briefing, Echo Yanka. Thank you for having me back. Well, thanks for joining us, Echo. And 
I must say, the the double standard in in our justice system seemed to be pretty clear in the last few days down in Fulton County with all of the 19 defendants in the upcoming trial brought by the Atlanta DA, Fannie Willis, with Trump, of course, stealing the limelight with his mugshot. But others, like Rudy Giuliani, complained afterwards the indignity of having a mugshot, and yet they were all in and out in no time whatsoever. They were able to post bail and considerable amounts of money. Of course, Trump's bail was set at 200000 Giuliani's was 150000 Eastman, Cheeseborough, Jenna Ellis, Sidney Powell, their bail was set at 100000 and others were ranged from 10000 to 75000 But it was hardly an indignity when you compare it to the inmates inside that prison, many of whom have been rotting there for over a year without trial. So uh, am I correct in seeing a double standard here? You're, you're absolutely correct. And one of the stunning and really angry-making things is how often the very rich and powerful, the very privileged in every sense, suddenly become aware of the kind of indignities and relentless fights for not no accountability, but humane accountability that lots of people have been fighting for generations so that the poorest uh, people of color in over-policed communities, people who don't have the privilege to cut huge checks, so that they can also face accountability but do so in a way that keeps their life together. As you hinted at, it's, it's worth reminding ourselves something like 20% of everybody who's in jail now is in jail for pre, is being held pre-trial, right? That is, they still have the presumption of innocence. Nobody has yet convicted them, and yet they sit in jail because unlike the very wealthy defendant who get to stop by Fox News all the time, they can't simply um, either cut a check or use a celebrity bail bondsman. Um, they simply can't even use a system which is itself punishing in the bills bondsmen. Um, so it's stunning to hear, especially Rudy Giuliani, who made his reputation on a kind of lock them up and throw away the key mentality, who had no sympathy for the countless poor, in particular poor black people, homeless people, that he led the charge to incarcerate when he was mayor, suddenly find... Um, suddenly find that the indignities of the criminal justice system can be um, unkind. Well, four people have died in this jail in the last six weeks. You mentioned homelessness. The latest is Alexander Hawkins, a 66-year-old Atlantan, who was in and out of incarceration and homelessness for most of his life. And he died a week ago for just for the need of a $500 bail on a $5,000 bond, and he was arrested for allegedly shoplifting a $24 pair of pants and a $20 electric shaver from Walmart in July. So that's sort of the the typical inmate, right? Or not typical, but an awful lot of them. Oh, absolutely. And in fact, to your point, um, not only do we have a huge number of people who are locked up pre-trial, who have no um, no resources, who certainly don't get to arrange with their celebrity lawyers what time they'll show up, who don't get breezed in and out, um, 
and then get back on their private jet. Um, but as you say, it's often for incredibly petty crimes. Um, the reason that they're committing petty crimes is, you know, the reason you steal a razor is because you can't afford one. And so the bond ends up being a cycle of poverty and imprisonment. Um, and it's not a trivial number. It's not a trivial thing. It is, by some estimations, it is more people serving time in prison pretrial than it are in prison for all drug offenses. So that's the scale we're talking about. Um, and, you know, there was no sympathy from these kind of defendants when this was unraveling ordinary lives. If you get locked up in prison and you can't then be breezed in and out with kind of uh, celebrity concierge service, you can lose your job. Um, you can lose access to all sorts of um, uh, provisions or help or securities that you have. If you have um, access to, say, mental health work, if you have access to, say, housing temporarily, all those things disappear. And so for those who actually are riding a wave far above that, to suddenly think that they um, that they're being, I mean, the word is a little more than inconvenienced and and um, embarrassed, that that is more important or that should suddenly bring our conscience to bear is just a shocking disregard for, as you say, the ordinary inmate whose lives unravel because they can't afford 50 or $500. And this uh, Fulton County Jail, which was opened in 1989, it was designed to hold 1,125 inmates and there was a 2006 consent order requiring the jail to remain under 2,500 inmates. That's already almost over twice the capacity, or twice the capacity. And in December of 2022, the jail held 2,950. And in 2022, the jailers... Uh, had to put out 11 fires. They reported 534 fights and 114 stabbings. At least two of the 15 deaths last year were murders. So not only are these people being held without trial, rotting in that jail for months, if not years, uh, for petty offences, the atmosphere uh, is obviously terrifying. You know, it's violent. Uh, people die. People get stabbed. So that's physical and psychological punishment for essentially being poor. That's absolutely right. And, you know, among the things that's really difficult is the mentality that we as a nation have taken. I understand that there are people that we're going to have to punish. Um, we all understand that there are some things you do that mean you can't be among us. But we would never convict somebody and sentence them to be raped. We would never convict somebody and sentence them to be stabbed. We'd never convict somebody and sentence them to um, sleep in their own, in their own ways. But functionally that's what we do because we don't care about the conditions in our prison systems. And so things that would be clearly not just unconstitutional, but immoral there's a kind of wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Well, look, if you did the crime, you do the time in ways that really belie our humanity. Um, you know, I could tell a million stories like this, but just two points come to mind. One was uh, where I lived for over 25 years, Rikers Island, where you had stunning overpopulation, overcrowding, um, stunning dangerousness, and most famously resulting in suicides of very young children 
who were left on Rikers and who just couldn't handle the psychological trauma. I know that I know that law professors are too fond of giving out homework, but I really would urge your readers to think about a case that um, came through the Californian system called Brown v. Plata. In Brown v. Plata, it was held that the California criminal, um, excuse me, the Californian prison system was so overcrowded, as you say, often three people to a bed that's supposed to hold one. Uh, I mean, I really cannot urge your viewers enough. Just a simple Google will show you pictures of the prison conditions. It was such mass incarceration, such overcrowding, that the conditions themselves were held to be cruel and unusual punishment and thus unconstitutional. This is what we've determined that we can allow ourselves to do. And I still believe in the old idea that a society is in part judged by how it treats its least liked Um and that we can decide to sentence people to this kind of treatment shows something really wrong in us. And there's an obvious racial disparity, isn't there, between white people? I mean, black people and white people consume and deal as many drugs, but yet there's a hell of a lot more black people in jail, right, for drug offenses yeah, absolutely. in particular. Absolutely, and I mentioned this earlier when I said, you know, Giuliani had no sympathy for these arguments when it was over police, poor and black and brown communities. But of course, you're right. And the racial disparities mean that it's going to show up at every point during the system. So, for example, though, as you point out, black people, brown people and white people, Asian people seem to do drugs at the same rate. If you live in a community where you're over policed, then you're going to get you know, you're going to get picked up. You're going to get caught. You're going to get a sentence. That means that the next time that something goes wrong, if something goes wrong, you have a criminal record. And that means that your bail is going to be much higher, going right back to where we started. And thus, you're going to languish and rot in jail longer. Or let's even just say that didn't happen. They're just robust studies that judges, whether consciously or unconsciously, read black defendants as more dangerous, as less likely to show up, and do so even when the cases are exactly identical, and thus set higher bails for black defendants. And of course, this is all against the background of a society that has deep racial flaws. So if black people are, and uh, Latinos are systematically poorer than white people, that's also going to mean they spend more time in jail. Because even if the bonds are exactly the same, you're going to have fewer resources and, say, fewer family members who can simply come up with the money in order to let you get on with your life, go back to work, stay productive, and stay out of that track, which ultimately threatens to drag you into more criminality. So can't we get rid of cash bail? I mean, I know some states are trying to do so. I don't know whether the bail bonds lobby is that strong. But it doesn't make any sense to have so many young black men and, uh, and homeless people that we've discussed rotting away in jail because they can't afford a few hundred dollars. And meanwhile, you've got people like Trump and companies you know, cycling through in a few minutes and, and literally exploiting the situation to become martyrs and to merchandise his own mugshot picture on T-shirts and mugs, which is already happening. So they're profiting. Privileged people, in this case, of Trump and, and his cohorts, are profiting from the so-called indignity of having a mugshot, whereas uh, the rest of them are rotting for the want of a f few hundred dollars. 
So it would seem to me that you could come up with a system that would not require cash bail for people with minor offences, but for murderers and rapists, etc., there'd be no bail. So yeah. why can't we have a system yeah. like that? Yeah, no, you're, you put your finger exactly on it. And indeed, there has been a long, robust, and absolutely dedicated set of advocates who've been fighting against cash bail for really now generations, um, who've been pointing out the racial disparity in cash bail for generations, and who've been pointing out that on top of it all, bail is not even particularly effective. It doesn't do a great job of what it pretends to do. Bail is not about if you're dangerous. The idea is if you're dangerous, then as you point out, if you're truly dangerous, then we're going to hold you in jail. Bail is about simply incentivizing you to show up. And it turns out, they're, they're just really great studies on this. It turns out if you want people to show up, you just have to help them show up. So for example, when people are given automatic and electronic trackers or reminders, they simply showed up to their hearings. They didn't want to miss their hearings. They want this put behind them and to get on with their life. There are so many different ways we could help people meet and face accountability, claim their innocence, or take their punishments that don't unravel their lives. Now, these movements, however, because the people that are being fought for are, if we're honest, typically unpopular, typically black, typically poor, typically Hispanic, right, or any mix of those things, these are not the people who grab national sympathy. So in New York, where cash bail reform took years to implement, the immediate political backlash was full of, frankly, lies, wild stories. All it takes is one person on bail doing one terrible thing. And the fact that you have stopped thousands of people from having their lives unraveled gets disappeared in sensationalism. And that sensationalism, if we're honest, is promoted often by people like Trump and certainly Giuliani who then turn around when they are faced with the same kinds of burdens and cry out for our sympathies while they laugh. And as you point out, while they sort of make a mockery of the, of the same burdens that ruin other people's lives. So apart from New York, what other states and jurisdictions have eliminated cash bail or at least reformed the system? It is a long running fight. And so the, the, um, the chess pieces are always moving. As I said, New York passed this and only to have it truncated. So, you know, a state like New York is a kind of example because it's hard for me to say whether or not cash bail reform was passed in New York. It was passed and then gutted. Illinois, if memory serves, has recently um, abolished cash bail in all but the most extreme examples. So we're getting sort of spots of experimentation across the country. Um, you know, one doesn't want to, one doesn't want to, uh, pretend to know it all, but um, so far there's no real evidence that reducing cash bail, despite the occasional sensationalist story, that it has any real effect on on um, crimes or or danger or violence committed by the population who would otherwise be rotting in jail. Simply gives people a chance to keep trying to put their life together, even while facing legal accountability. So, just in closing, then, is there anything that the federal government can do? Can they set a standard here? It's hard. I mean, the federal government can always try to in, instill or um, model best practices, but as a as a standing matter, criminal law is dominated by the states, right? It is the ultimate, as we say in constitutional law, police action, thus state action. And so you have 
countless jurisdictions, you know, not just 50 states, but countless jurisdictions within those states. And so the fight to reform cash bail, to grab onto the words, even if cynically and hypocritically spoken by people like Giuliani, and make people see that, in fact, we should treat all defendants the way the most privileged defendants demand to be treated. It's a, it's a localized battle in jurisdiction by jurisdiction, state by state. Well, Iko Yanka, I thank you so much for joining us here today. I appreciate it. It's my pleasure. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Iko Yanka, who is a professor of law at the University of Michigan, whose work focuses on questions of political and criminal theory, and particularly questions of political obligation and justifications of punishment, whose research focuses on criminal law and theory, political theory, policing, and voting rights. He also serves on the executive board of the Innocence Project and the American Constitution Society's New York chapter. And his publications include A Paradox in Overcriminalization and Good Guys and Bad Guys, Punishing Character, Equality, and the Irrelevance of Moral Character to Criminal Punishment. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media, and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now. Yeah.